My name is Hugh Ross, and today I'm with uh, Fuzz Rana, our uh, president of Reasons to Believe. As we explore, I'm going to be talking about uh, the photosynthetic habitable zone. Fuzz is going to be talking about a subject we're all interested in, meat. <laughs> but before we get into the discussion, I wanted to encourage you to subscribe to our YouTube channel, Reasons to Believe YouTube channel, and follow us on social media at RTB underscore official so that you can be informed of our latest new videos and other content that we produce. Well, Fuzz, why don't we start with you and, uh, hey, artificial meat? Uh, what's this all about? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the, 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 the last time we were on a podcast together, you talked about French fries. <laughs> right. And so uh, I thought I would return the favor okay. and talk about Turduncan, right? And, and I don't know if this is a culinary masterpiece or a monstrosity, but for those people that are not familiar with Turduncan, this is made famous by John Madden, who the late John Madden, who was... Right a CBS sports analyst, football analyst, but also a Super Bowl-winning head coach for the Oakland Raiders. Uh, and then Paul Prudhomme as well, the famous celebrity chef. Uh, but it's essentially turkey, and a well, a turkey that's been deboned, and into that turkey is stuffed a duck that's been deboned, and then a chicken that's been deboned. And then some people like to put like a pork roast or something else within the chicken. And of course, there's stuffing and with bread and sausage and, and the, all the in-between. It sounds really easy to prepare. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, in, in a sense, now, I... Have you ever eaten it? No, no, have you? <laughs> no, I haven't either. No, I mean, I think and I would... There's no way I'm going to prepare that. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to do it one time, but I don't think I would ever want to try to cook it. But, um, yeah, this, you know, is kind of emblematic, I think, of the love affair that Americans in particular have with meat. But that, that love affair is actually worldwide. I think the U.S. tends to consume the most meat of any country in the world. I heard South Africa just moved ahead of the U.S. Well, that could be. Yeah. And I know other countries like Spain, Argentina, right. Australia, Argentina, yeah. you know, very prominent meat producers and consumers. Uh, but the, I remember seeing this little uh, clip which showed uh, an Australian salad. It was a huge steak. With a little sprig of mint on top. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess you're right. Everybody likes meat, right? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, the, the, the fact of the matter is the, the estimates in 2022 were people were consuming worldwide 360 million tons of meat. Wow. That's the, the globe. And that that's uh, in 19. Here's a chart showing the, the growing uh, meat consumption around the world, 1961, 71 million tons of meat were consumed. Now, some of this is due to population growth, but it's also due to aff increasing affluence around the world. As people have more wealth, they're using that money to, to incorporate more meat into their diet. And projections are that by 2050, you're looking at probably 600 million tons of meat being consumed on That's a world. That's a lot of meat per day per human being. Yes. I mean, yeah. So we're not talking uh, just supplementing your vegan diet anymore. No, no. We're so. no, it's there and of course the the only way to satisfy the the demands for that much meat is through factory farming, right? And so one of the big concerns is one, would we be able to in the future even satisfy 
that global demand for meat. Hey, one little question. Does this include fish consumption or is it just? Yes. It does. Okay. Yeah, that's fish consumption as well. Okay. Um, but, you know, if we can even, you know, satisfy that demand, it's going to require factory farming. There's just absolutely no way around it. And, of course, a lot of people are concerned about factory farming just simply because of the inhumane nature of, of, of that practice. Plus, it, it raises questions about really the health of the meat because when you have animals grown in that type of space with those, that high density, the prospects of disease are high. And, of course, they're fed antibiotics you know, the animals aren't getting exercise. Right, so. right. So it's it's just, it's inhumane, it's unhealthy. And even for people that are meat lovers, you have to have pause for thought when you think about the way animals are, are treated in order to satisfy that, that meat demand. And of course, there's even a type of factory farming with fish, right? Yes, and, yes you know, very much. Right, so, and then on top of that, you have just the environmental pressures, I mean, the, you know, the, this is a slide that does a great job of summarizing the problem. But uh, according to the data, about 20% of greenhouse gas emissions come from animal agriculture, right? And this is methane, which is far worse than CO2 right. as a greenhouse gas. Uh, the, you need a lot of land. And so that means land for raising the animals so this is driving deforestation around the world. Statistics are that about 91% of the deforestation in the Amazon rainforest is to satisfy animal agriculture. Uh, there's a lot of land that's required to grow the crops needed to feed the animals. So in the U.S., almost 70% of uh, plant production for, ag for consumption is for feed for animals. So, Especially with corn. I mean, right. Isn't it like 90% of the corn goes to feed animals? Yeah. So 30% yeah. of the land that's used to produce food that humans would directly consume in, for, in the form of fruits and vegetables, or it's only 30% of the, of the cropland. So that's, a, again, a, a land demand. And then there are some data showing that on a per gram basis, Comparing beef with plant protein, it takes 20 times the amount of land. 20 times. To, for one gram of protein from beef versus one gram of protein from beans or legumes or, or other things like that. And th then water, you know, half the water we use in the U.S. goes for animal agriculture. There's, again, concerns about pollution when you have uh, polluting the water supply. When you have that many animals in that tight of a space... It's, you know, animal waste is going to wind up if people are, aren't managing it well into the water supplies. Oh, Fuzz, you've ever driven up Highway 5 uh, towards uh, the Bay Area? Yeah. And uh, what do you smell all the way up? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not a pleasant smell. Not a pleasant smell. And then there's a the damage to the ecosystems. Yeah. When you're raising that much farm animals, yeah. that means there's just less habitat space. Mm -hmm. for all other forms of life. Yeah, that's a really good point. And the antibiotic that is used in factory farming leaches into the into the environment, and people believe that that actually is contributing to the rise of antibiotic-resistant superbugs because those genes are then selected for in the environment and through horizontal gene transfer wind up in human pathogens. So th there's, you know, 
there's environmental stressor, uh, pressures there's, and stressors, there's inhumane treatment of animals. So, you know, the, the global demand for meat is not without serious consequence. And there's economic cost, too. Meat's not cheap. No, it's so, not. Yeah. It absolutely is not. Now, you know, people, again, are looking to maybe find ways to encourage people to replace meat in their diet. So this is an interesting uh, diagram that kind of shows um, what people are willing to do. <laughs> so, you know, most people are willing to reduce the amount of meat they consume Others are, are willing to become vegetarians, though that's a relatively small number. Mm -hmm. And then there are some people that are looking for, you know, plant-based protein alternatives. But there, at the bottom of the chart, there's two other alternatives that seem a little radical. One is to use insects as a source of protein, and not a lot of people are up for that. And the other is to actually use meat that is cultured in a laboratory. You know, Fuzz, I just read a research paper on uh, getting our protein from insects, and the whole paper was devoted to how do we use, uh, you know, nutrition and protein from insects and package it in such a way that the consumer has no idea that they're <laughs> eating insects. Kind of takes me back to when I was a child where they were using earthworms <laughs> and putting it in cookies and never telling the consumer <laughs> how where that protein came from, nobody noticed. <laughs> and so maybe that 8% will get a lot bigger if uh, we turn people yeah. loose on, yeah. okay, we're going to use insects, but we're going to hide it. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> at the end of the day, an amino acid is an amino acid, right? <laughs> right. But And crickets actually <laughs> taste pretty good. I don't know if you've ever eaten crickets. I, I, have, I can't say I have, but I, they, were, they were offered when I was in Cambodia, and I just politely declined that. I see. <laughs> so, but anyway, but here's a, a you know, kind of a, art, an artistic depiction of the idea of, of lab meat. So it's, it's also called synthetic meat, cultured meat. Uh, advocates for this like to refer to it as clean meat because uh, it is produced in a laboratory setting or in an, in an ideally at some point in the future in an industrial setting where you're not going to have you know, concerns about... Um, There'll be no antibiotics. There'll be no disease. Yeah, no, make sure it's Right, because when you're slaughtering an animal, if the digestive organs get in contact with the meat, you are contaminating the meat with right. bacteria. So it's a, a cleaner form of meat. It might even be healthier, as we'll see in a minute, because you can do things uh, to the preparation of the meat in the lab to increase the level of unsaturated fats in the composition of the unsaturated fats, uh, those take types out of things. The saturated fats. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sounds so great. anyway, but I mean, the the idea behind this, it's very high tech, uh, quite interesting biotechnology, where uh, you take a biopsy from the a muscle of an animal, and so not only are you limited in, uh, to you know the traditional animals that people consume cows and pigs and chickens and things like that, but you could potentially even take biopsies from more exotic animals. And so a lot of people that are foodies are very excited about lab meat because they realize that this might be a way to actually create novel forms of meat where you combine cells from different animal sources or you can use exotic animals to prepare meat without actually destroying 
uh, the animal in the process. All you have to do is take a biopsy from the animal. And And, and the cells can be cultured so that just even a few cells can feed huge numbers of people. I don't remember what the statistics are, but it's quite impressive. Uh, And the idea is that once you get the cells, you separate them. Uh, There's a technique to separate the different cell types, and you're looking for what are called myocytes or satellite cells. These are progenitor cells that will develop into fully formed muscle fibers. But you can also incorporate fat cells to give flavor and and texture. So there's a lot of things you can manipulate in terms of adding different cell types. Some people are exploring the use of embryonic stem cells or induced pluripotent stem cells as the source of cells instead of an animal biopsy. Uh, And then once you get the cells, you create a three-dimensional scaffolding made out of an edible material and then you get the cells to grow in three dimensions and interestingly so just enough like growing them in a petri dish kind of thing yeah but you're yeah. creating a, a scenario where they'll they'll grow three-dimensionally mm-hmm. it's through the use of the scaffolding uh, as well as probably different types of bioreactors that are designed to form three-dimensional tissue cultures And then you also need, because it's muscle, apply electrical stimulation and mechanical stimulation that helps the muscle fiber to develop. Uh, And and then, voila, you've got meat that can be ground up into patties and things like that. And I'm guessing that uh, it's identical to the meat that you get from... Near identical. I mean, there is uh, some concern about identicality because... There's go- there are going to be things like micronutrients, other trace materials that you probably can't replicate in a laboratory setting. But on the other hand, you can experiment with the culturing conditions in such a way that maybe you, that you could re- maybe replace or supplement some of those micronutrients. But you can do things now to manipulate the texture, the well, flavor. You can inject nutrients and yeah. know, maybe even experiment and come up with a right. much healthier meat. Right, exactly. And th- this is a, a diagram showing kind of the different stages in, in uh, the muscle development. And so what you're doing is if you start with stem cells, you're actually going through a much more elaborate process of, of cell culturing uh, conditions to, in order to get to the, the, uh, the myoblasts or the, uh, the satellite cells. And then those actually will eventually start to fuse into these fibers called myotubules that then form the basis for for muscle fibers. So this is all done through manipulating the growth conditions and the the types of uh, growth factors that you add at particular times. And I imagine we can not only do muscle tissue, you could do liver tissue, heart tissue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you can get all the different kinds of meats. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. There's absolutely, you know, and people are even looking at this technology as a way to create a synthetic letter, leathers, or this could be used for alternatives for milk and for eggs. So they're, they're... I was going to ask about milk. So this could be done, to, you can make artificial milk this way. Yeah, potentially, or, mm-hmm. or, or using a similar kind of concept. Right. Maybe not precisely this with this method. Now I see injury at the upper right there. Oh, this is just a diagram that okay. I pulled. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, I was so... wondering whether you have to purposely <laughs> injure the... No, no. No, you don't. No, okay. no, 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 no. That's... <laughs> That, that, this is more how muscle cells develop got more it, so than... Uh, but it's asse- you're essentially replicating this process uh, in, the, in the, you know, Petri dish. Now, 
the big problem with <laughs> lab meat is the cost. <laughs> so I yeah. was hoping this would be like one-tenth the price of Well, no, <laughs> no. In fact, uh, in 2000, yeah, I think it was 2013, a, a researcher by the name of Mark Post produced a, um, a pound of lab meat and then fed it or gave it to chefs who prepared it. And then they had testers, taste testers, who evaluated the meat. And, and it scored very high. Okay. But that pound of meat cost $330,000. $330,000. Right. I'm not going to be ordering that anytime <laughs> soon, Fuzz. Yeah. <laughs> now, but this was, I think, again, 2013. Since then, there have been a number of startup companies around the world that are looking to commercialize this. And the costs have plummeted. So this is a diagram showing different companies and how they are able to get costs to, to drop. So you're now looking at costs that are uh, on the order of um, four or five, six thousand dollars a pound, which is still a lot of money, but the, the idea is that the drop in cost has been substantial. And it turns out that one of the biggest drivers of cost is the culture media that you use. It's, it's something known as fetal bovine serum is used in the culture media. And, and this is essentially blood taken from the, the, a, a cow fetus, but it's a horrific process to get the, the, bo the, because you have to kill the mother, kill the calf, and then you drain the blood, and then you use that to prepare the growth medium. And this is necessary because there are certain growth factors that are in the cow blood. How could you make that in the lab? Yes, people are looking to do that. Okay. And of course, if you have to use fetal bovine serum to grow lab meat, it defeats the whole purpose of right. creating humane meat, exactly. right? You know, and this is a standard technique used or standard material used in, in cell culture technology, but people are looking for replacements for it and have, have found a number of replacements. And this is significant because the cost, I believe, of a liter of fetal bovine serum is about $1,500. So if you can replace that, that is going to dramatically reduce the cost of, of lab meat. So people think that it, it won't be long before there will be commercial offerings well, of lab meat. I look at this graph here. It looks like the price is already down around four fifty dollars a pound. Uh, no, that's um, probably $4,500 a pound. Oh, $4,500 a pound. Yeah, yeah. We're still in the $1,000 per pound. Okay. But, but the idea is that if you go... In a, in a matter of less than 10 years from $300,000 a pound to, let's say, approximately $3,000 a pound, that's several orders of magnitude drop yes. in, in costs. And so people are aggressively, you know, pursuing, again— Well, as I project out to about 2030, it looks like the price is going to drop to $1.50 a pound. Something like that. And so— uh, and that's basically, you know, scaling up, mm -hmm. finding a way to replace the serum right. with another medium. Right. And so people actually consider that to be a realistic. Yes. Yeah. So within seven years, yeah. we can buy artificial meat for a dollar fifty a pound. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. And people actually believe that the first artificial meat that will be commercialized will be shrimp, artificial mm -hmm. shrimp, because it's a much less complicated meat than. Uh, beef or, or pork or chicken uh, because of the, there, there's no connective tissue in it. And so it's a much easier meat to, to produce. Uh, and people are much more likely to, I think, accept it because 
uh, the, the the texture is probably going to be consistent with what you get from an animal source. And they're talking about being able to put it on the market for less money than it would cost to catch the shrimp. That that would be the hope. Yeah. Now, now you know the the most definitely I think um, if you can eliminate the use of fetal bovine serum, you really have made significant progress in terms of minimizing um, animal cruelty. And and it's going to free up a lot of land as well. Uh, now, you still are going to have pollution because you're going to have, you know, factories that are going to be producing the meat. And, and so that's going to leave a, an environmental footprint. Uh, so, you know, the hope is that you're going to come out with a net po- positive for the environment. But there is the possibility that lab meat may not actually deliver uh, in terms of green technology like people hope. Uh, and there was a study published, um, kind of bad news, uh, by UC, re- researchers from UC Davis. And this is a preprint, but they did an environmental assessment of lab meat. And they were looking at essentially the uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So this is only greenhouse gas emissions. It doesn't cover land usage or water usage, things like that. Uh, and what they showed is that for a pound of lab meat, you're looking at 20 times the amount of greenhouse gas emissions than you are for a pound of meat produced from an animal. Wow. Right. And they, what they point out is that the, what's the ultimate culprit is the, the growth medium, is that because culturing eukaryotic cells is very, very difficult, it's not like growing bacterial cells in the lab, you have to have highly purified materials, pharmaceutical grade purity in the reagents that you're using, and that creates an a economic cost, but it also creates an energy cost that they argue has to be factored into the equation. Now, this is actually good news in the sense that at this stage of the process, you've identified a, a potential problem, right? that you can then look to ways to, to rectify the problem. And even if the greenhouse gas emissions are higher, it doesn't mean that there's still not a positive net for the environment simply because of the land usage, water usage, uh, you know, minimizing pollution in the environment. It's probably much easier to manage waste from a, 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 an industrial setting versus a factory f- farm. Now, do these calculations take into effect that if you're not having to devote a lot of land to grow corn for cattle or ranch land for cattle, you don't need all the industrial uh, equipment like tractors uh, running around? No, none of, none of that none was taken. Yeah. So that would be a mitigating factor because yes. you'd be dramatically reducing right. greenhouse gas emissions right. by just simply changing the way we farm the land. Right. You know, to me as a whole, I'm excited about the prospects of lab meat. Uh, but w- what this study is is a cautionary tale. It's that it's very easy to to sit down and do kind of a a back of the envelope type of assessment of the environmental impact of technology that you hope is green technology, and it's very easy not to be to incorporate the appropriate details or think about every aspect of the process. So that was really, you know, the, it was a, called a life cycle study where they were very detailed in terms of considering everything that went into the production. They also are looking at it as it's being produced today, right? So 
the hope is that future advances will mitigate this concern. So it's just a cautionary tale in general that, look, when people are claiming a technology is going to be green, we really want to think about that very carefully before we invest all kinds of resources going down a particular path. Yeah, an analogy would be like electric cars. Well, what do you do when you have to recycle the batteries? Right. So, I mean, you need to take that into account. Right. So I'm glad that they're doing this kind of study. Right. And, you know, and again, you know, it may be that lab meat isn't going to be the dominant for- source of protein in the future. It still may be plant-based, right? Uh, you know, or people just consume less meat. But if you get it down meat. to $1.50 a pound, I right. can see it just taking over. Yeah, yeah. So. And, well, and it definitely will be, I think, a replacement, right? Uh, if, you know, and part of what replaces you know, meat produced through animal farming. But even just to eliminate the the factory farming in and of itself is sig- significant. Well, if you can make the meat taste better and it's right. cheaper and healthier, right. who's not going to buy it? Right. So. Right. Right. Uh, and, you know, in, and in terms of, you know, kind of the science-faith connection, this is a fun topic to talk about no matter what. But, you know, I, I think many people... Uh, have this perception that Christians' first response to to emerging biotechnologies is that it's guilty until proven innocent. And I think what I would want to really encourage Christians to do is take the opposite approach, that the technology is innocent until proven guilty, that we really should have uh, an, an orientation towards positively looking at advances in biotechnology because it really helps us to fulfill the mandate that God has given us as human beings to be stewards of the planet, to to rule over the planet in a way that promotes human flourishing, but also in a way that that protects the planet and treats other life forms with respect. And so when you see the the types of advances with lab meat, it's very easy to to have the ick factor to say, you know, we shouldn't be playing God, you know, uh, or to take some kind of position, you know, that that God made animals for us to eat, and not really think about, you know, things in a in a in a careful context where this actually is falls within our dominion to create lab meat, and it really is humane, and it it's probably better in the long run for the environment. I'm pretty excited about this because I immediately went to Genesis 1. You know, God has put us humans in charge mm-hmm. to manage the planet for our benefit right. and the benefit of all of their life. I can see enormous benefit here. And it's like God gave us the minds mm-hmm. and the technology to be able to do things with Earth's resources uh, that are truly mind-blowing. Yeah, uh, This could be great. I mean, people love uh, contact with wild animals, but because of all of our domesticated animals, nowadays you got to spend a little bit of money to take yeah. a vacation where you got contact with these creatures. Yeah. If we're able to take all this land out of you know, animal uh, production support, at least a good chunk of it, we now release the environment mm-hmm. uh, for the rest of life on the planet. Yeah. They're going to thrive. The tourist industry is going to really benefit from this. Mm-hmm. So it's like I can see huge economic benefits. Yeah. And if the meat is healthier, yeah. if it tastes better and it's cheaper, yeah. uh, I'm all for it. And, uh, yeah, it could significantly reduce the level of cruelty that we see in these factory farms. Yeah. And it uh, would actually make possible uh, that we could support an even larger human population that we already know is coming in the next 20 years. Yeah. So yeah. we need something like this. Yeah. 
You know, I couldn't agree more. And, um, you know, when people, you know, level the charge that we shouldn't play God, my response is, well, we have no choice because we're made in God's image, you know, and and that, you know, we are not only co-stewards and co-rulers with God, we are also co-creators. And and God has given us this creative capacity, so we really are honoring God when we when we play God. The problem is, are we trying to take God's place? And right. this is the type of technology that comes out of, you know, developments in stem cell biology, cloning, gene editing, all these things that a lot of times Christians will view with a high level of concern and suspicion. And to some degree, that that's justified. But on the other hand, this technology can be used for so much uh, potential good. Well, we, look at all the proverbs that talk about be kind to your animals. Mm-hmm. This is going to make a huge, it's going to make that yeah. possible in a way we never have before. And, uh, you know, all these people that are going on a vegan diet, hey, if you can get artificial milk, artificial eggs, they can still avoid the meat, but I think yeah. they'll be in a healthier role. We can make the eggs healthier, the milk healthier. Can you imagine healthy ice cream? Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so, Fuzz, this is fantastic. Yeah. Fun, fun, fun discussion. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for bringing this to the table. So, are, are you finished? Or you yeah, gotta, yeah I, I am. I, sorry. Okay. Yeah. Good. Well, let me uh, segue to something that's a little bit in your area. And, uh, you know, I wrote this book back in 2016. I wrote mm-hmm. it in 2015, but it got published in 2016. But I had several pages devoted to photosynthesis, Mm -hmm. and in particular, uh, the photosynthetic habitable zone. And I was quite surprised just to see a couple of weeks ago this paper published in Astrophysical Journal Letters, and it's all about uh, announcing the discovery of the photosynthetic zone. It's like, gee, maybe I should have published this (laughs) in a peer-reviewed journal uh, some seven, eight Mm -hmm. years ago. Uh, and when I read it, it's very similar to what's in Improbable Planet. Hmm. So, but let me begin by telling people what we mean by a planetary habitable zone. Okay. So uh, this uh, first slide here uh, basically shows you, hey, you've got the host star, you've got the planet. And when you read in uh, popular articles about the habitable zone, they're talking about the orbit relative to the host star where you got a possibility of liquid water existing on mm. the surface of the planet. And so, you know, uh, here on planet Earth, at the air pressure we have, water is liquid between zero and 100 degrees centigrade. And so the calculation is, well, how close can you get to the star and still have liquid water? How far away can you go from the star and still have liquid water? And so this is kind of what you'll see on... Uh, different NASA websites. The second slide uh, basically explains how it is that NASA claims there could be 40 billion planets uh, in the liquid Mm. water habitable zone in our Milky Way galaxy alone. Well, it's because they've redefined the liquid water habitable zone. Is it conceivable that a planet could have liquid water on a small region of its surface for a small period of time. And by small, hey, as small as a square kilometer, mm-hmm. how brief are we talking about, a month? Well, we're talking something that brief in time and that small an area in a planet's surface, uh, you get a much bigger mm-hmm. liquid water habitable zone. So this kind of gives you an idea. 
Mm -hmm. just how wide that habitable zone can be if you're simply willing to redefine, Mm -hmm. uh, okay, uh, what does it take to have a possibility, a conceivable Mm -hmm. possibility there'd be liquid water? And, of course, the atmosphere makes a big effect. Mm -hmm. And the more heat it traps, the less heat it traps. So that explains why people say, well, uh, relative to our star the sun, any planet that would be between the orbit of Mercury and twice the orbit of the Earth, way beyond the orbit of the Mars, would be in the liquid water habitable zone. Because mm-hmm. you can conceive of a planet twice as far away as the Earth, having a very thick atmosphere that traps a lot of heat, making uh, possible liquid water. Or you can go in really close and have a really thin atmosphere, doesn't trap much at all. Mm-hmm. And if you're only looking at one region, the pole is going to be colder than the equator. So that explains why mm-hmm. you get that, that huge uh, number. Mm-hmm. However, if we're talking about having liquid water that's semi-permanent on a planet's surface, where it covers a substantial fraction of the planet's surface, and the next slide shows you, you wind up with a much narrower mm-hmm. uh, liquid water habitable zone. I mean, as you can see, you just get a very thin mm-hmm. line of distance or annulus between the star where that's possible. And the next slide basically shows you what would be the case if we're talking about a planet like Earth that has stable liquid water uh, for 3.8 billion years uh, over not just a small mm-hmm. fraction of its planet's surface, but you know more than 50% of the planet's surface. Now you get an annulus that's so thin it's really hard to see it. Mm-hmm. So now suddenly that 40 billion reduces down to thousands uh, because of how thin that is. But this paper that got published in the Astrophysical Journal Letters and what I published in Improbable Planet basically make the point, if you want photosynthetic life, uh, you get s- significantly greater constraints. Mm-hmm. And... The reason for the focus on photosynthetic life, I mean, you know this as a biochemist, any life form that's photosynthetic or dependent upon photosynthetic life like animals uh, is able to have a high metabolic rate. Mm -hmm. They're able to live for a while. And uh, the energy difference is like a factor of 10,000 times when you compare life forms that don't need any oxygen at all, don't need any photosynthetic activity, happening in their environment, they can live, but they can't do much. Yeah. Their metabolic rate is orders of magnitude less. And so if we're really talking about habitable planets where you got life that isn't just totally dormant and doesn't do anything, uh, we're really talking about, okay, you need a planet mm-hmm. that can have photosynthetic life. And so this paper <laughs> written by four astronomers basically says, well, what do you really realistically need uh, in terms of uh, a planet orbiting a so star uh, where you can have a photosynthetic life? And uh, the next slide uh, basically shows you, well, there are five additional factors, mm-hmm. and there may be more. Uh, you can probably think of more, Fuzz, but these are the five um, most significant ones, and they're actually the ones I addressed in Improbable Planet, that the planet's surface temperature... Uh, can't be just zero to 100 degrees centigrade because, uh, you know, C3 photosynthesis has a particular narrow temperature range 
or the photosynthesis is efficient, mm -hmm. and you get a different range for C4. Mm -hmm. And uh, most of the photosynthetic life on planet Earth is C3. Mm -hmm. And uh, you'll need something around 17 degrees centigrade uh, to be efficient. And yeah, you say, well, how far can you go up or down from that? You can go up or down by about five degrees centigrade for a global mean average. It's still a photosynthesis going, but it, it's optimized at 17. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas when you go to C4 photosynthesis, and now you're looking at corn and sugarcane, mm -hmm. basically foodstuffs that make a lot of calories, but not many nutrients. C3, you get the calories, but you also get a lot of nutrients, mm -hmm. and you get trees. Mm -hmm. All trees are C3. So if you want lumber, you need to have C3 photosynthesis. You want nuts, et cetera. Uh, you need that. And uh, there, uh, the optimal temperature range is a bit higher. Mm -hmm. We're looking more like uh, 25, 27 degrees centigrade. And again, you go up or down mm -hmm. by about plus or minus five. But that's a lot narrower than zero to 100. Mm -hmm. And so they're saying the planet's surface temperature will significantly narrow uh, the planetary habitable zone if you want photosynthesis to occur. Mm -hmm. And then number two is the planet's rotation rate. <coughs> uh, photosynthetic life, unlike anaerobic life, uh, <coughs> needs the temperature to be somewhat stable. And so if you've got a long rotation rate, it's going to be too cold in the middle of the night mm. and too hot during the day. And again, given the narrow temperature range for photosynthesis, you really don't want to have a planet say, with a 35-hour rotation rate. Even 25 hours uh, would cause problems for photosynthesis. And you say, what about if it rotates too fast? Well, it can handle, uh, you know, like even a 15-hour rotation rate and still be okay. The problem is it limits the region on the planet's surface where photosynthesis can occur. Now you got narrow bands mm -hmm. uh, where it can occur. <clears throat> and if the rotation rate gets much faster than that, now you've got storm activity and wind velocities uh, that are going to rule it out entirely. Mm -hmm. So they're saying, yeah, the rotation rate needs to be fine-tuned. And then the quantity of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Right. You need a minimum of 150 parts uh, per million <clears throat> for photosynthesis to operate at all. And if it's at 180 or less, it'll run, but it's very, very inefficient. You don't get much. And again, if you got too much carbon dioxide, it stops the respiration. You know, it's not just we animals that respire, plants respire too. We animals are a little more subject. We get up to even say 600 parts per million. In fact, even where we are right now, right now we're at 410, 415 parts per million. Mm -hmm. That's where you begin to see respiratory issues mm -hmm. with animals, particularly with big active animals like us human beings. So people think we can go up to six or 900. Not at all the case. On the other hand, we're talking plants, they're a lot more tolerant. So they can handle a lot more carbon dioxide, uh, but they're not gonna be able to handle, uh, say, 20,000 parts uh, per million uh, and still have efficient photosynthesis uh, going on, or 100,000. So that has to be fine here. <coughs> And then the density and <coughs> composition of the atmosphere. So, uh, you know, we have 15 uh, pounds per square inch uh, pressure. And if you get a whole lot of pressure or very little pressure, mm -hmm. that will affect the photosynthesis. And then 
photosynthesis is based on the color of the light coming in right. to the surface of the planet. And C3 photosynthesis, C4 photosynthesis, slightly different color response. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and we happen to be orbiting a star that has the ideal mm -hmm. uh, light flow uh, to facilitate efficient photosynthesis. So it means not all any old star will do. You need a star uh, that has uh, just the right level of intensity of uh, radiation coming in to the surface of the planet at the right colors uh, for the photosynthesis. And the paper basically says, you know, we think we've covered the five big ones, yeah. but there are others. As a biochemist, I think you could jump in with a bunch of others. Well, I mean, I would think the the mineral content of the planet would be important. Right. You know, because the <clears throat> in at least if you look at photosynthesis here on Earth, you know, you have uh, a porphyrin ring that, that's essentially absorbing the energy from the sun, and there's a metal mm -hmm. that that's in a metal center for that porphyrin ring. So. I would suspect the, the mineral composition would be critical just for the, the light absorption. Yes, and <clears throat> photosynthetic light needs a lot of phosphorus. And, uh, right. And phosphorus is relatively rare in the universe. We happen to be living on a planet uh, that's got four times as much phosphorus as we'd expect for the rocky bodies. But even on planet Earth, you know, getting right. the phosphorus in is a challenge. And so uh, nitrogen, nitrates in the soil is another factor. Right. So. Well, you know, there's something that's even uh, a, a bit more eerie, <laughs> when you th at least for me, when you think about this, is that CO2 has these just, this just right chemical and physical properties that make it ideally suited for, for uh, the carbon source for photosynthesis. Right. Because it, it is soluble in water, it's soluble in air. And because of that, it can essentially diffuse through the water into the cells and serve as a, a, a source of carbon for carbon fixation reactions. And it has a just right chemical structure that allows it to react in such a way so that the carbon becomes fixed to other molecules with carbon. So in a, there's these just right set of chemical properties that CO2 has and, and those properties are working in conjunction with the just right set of properties for water to even make photosynthesis possible. So there's a deeper anthropic principle right. at work simply beyond this, this, these requirements well, for the habitable something zone. something these astronomers didn't <clears throat> cover in their paper, but it did cover not an improbable planet, but it is up on our web as an article, a Today's New Reason to Believe article. What are the constraints on carbon dioxide abundance in the atmosphere to have photosynthesis operating at a level where it's possible to feed a large number mm. of advanced animals like us human beings mm. and our domesticated animals? And now the shocking thing is you need between about 250 parts per million and 450 parts. If you get outside that range, uh, now you begin to have a problem mm. for sustaining a large population of advanced life. That's a really narrow range right. of carbon dioxide abundance. Uh, when you think of what our planet had, uh, you know, 3.8 billion years ago, it was above 10,000 parts per million. And, uh, you know, in the last ice age, it got close to getting down to where photosynthesis uh, would cease, at least at the high elevations. Mm. And, yeah, the amount of carbon dioxide you have at different elevations is a factor. So this 
this really is a fine-tuning argument that's mm -hmm. very constraining in terms of trying to find places where right. photosynthetic life can exist. And that's how they ended the paper, saying this is a far greater constraint on habitability right. uh, than would be just simply whether or not there's liquid water. And they point out, of course, you need both. Right. The planet needs to be in the liquid water habitable zone, and it must be in the photosynthetic habitable zone. And we talked about an improbable planet. At least in 2016, we knew of 11 distinct planetary habitable zones. Today, we know of 14. Mm. And for a planet to be truly habitable, it has to simultaneously reside in all 14 known uh, planetary habitable zones. And who knows how many others we're going to discover right. in the next decade or so. So, uh, and you know, how I look at this is it takes a lot of design to have a planet in which you've got abundant photosynthetic life. That design is at such an extremely high level. Even just looking at these five characteristics, uh, that we realize this is something that's not going to happen by chance yeah. in our universe. There really needs to be a mind outside the universe uh, that came in as an engineer and made sure everything was just right. Yeah. So are the authors more pessimistic about the, the prospects of finding life beyond our solar system in light of this kind of an analysis? They said if you're wanting to find a planet in which you've got photosynthetic life, mm -hmm. yes, the situation is far more pessimistic than what we see when people right. only look at the liquid water habitable zone. Right. And it still bothers me, Fuzz, <coughs> that when you read about planetary habitability, after all these years, people still have the idea there's only one criteria, right? liquid water. And we've known for 20 years uh, the ultraviolet radiation coming into the surface of the planet has to be fine-tuned. <coughs> That's something else we could add here. The ultraviolet radiation coming into the planet has to be much more narrowly fine-tuned for photosynthetic life than it does for anaerobic life. Mm -hmm. And so that would be some other factors we could right. add here. Uh, but, you know, years ago, astronomers calculated, okay, uh, we need a minimum amount of ultraviolet radiation at just the right wavelengths for life to even be possible. Too much kills all life off. Uh, what's the possibility of a planet being simultaneously in the ultraviolet habitable zone and liquid water habitable zone. And all those planets that NASA calculated was in the liquid water habitable zone, uh, less than 3% of the stars mm. sustaining these planets would be in both zones, and then only for a relatively short period of time. Mm. And so even getting two of the planetary requirements met is not easy. And then you got 12 more. Yeah. Well, it's amazing, you know, just how fine-tuned the Earth is, you know, and, and it's interesting that you continue to identify these factors. Well, somebody asked me a few weeks ago, Hugh, how many books have you written on cosmic fine-tuning? I said, what do you mean? A book that's totally, yeah. How many books are totally devoted to cosmic? It's seven books I've written. <laughs> so, and I'm wanting to put out another one. I got another one planned. Mm. So if the Lord allows me to continue writing. So it's like, there's a lot of fine tuning evidence out there. And I think one reason why 
I've had such a passion for writing about cosmic fine-tuning. It demonstrates the principle you see in Psalms, the creation Psalms, and the book of Job. The more we learn about nature, the more evidence we uncover for the supernatural handiwork of God. And fine-tuning is where I think we can accumulate that at the most rapid rate. If you're not convinced today, wait one week. We'll get more evidence. So, okay, let's try to wrap this up. I want to thank all of you for joining us today in Star Cells and God. You can join the discussion in the comments below. Remember to like this video and to subscribe for more content. You can get new episodes of Star Cells and God. They're released each Thursday and are available here on YouTube. And again, if you're not a subscriber, subscribe to the Reasons to Believe YouTube channel. That way you'll be notified of all the new videos that we're posting there on a regular basis. And be sure to share this video with a friend. And remember, the more we know about science, the more reasons we have to believe in Jesus Christ as Creator, Lord, and Savior. Thank you.